Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, DM Mitch, and today we are going to be discussing magic and cultures. And for that topic, we are going to be joined by a new guest, author J.C. Kong. We're really excited for him to be able to be with us on this show. It's a great episode. We hope that you are going to enjoy it. Before we dive in, though, we, of course, have a five-star review. And this five-star review comes from Dude5568999 and is entitled One of the Bests. Very recent subscription, but glad I found it. Thanks so much for that awesome review, dude. We appreciate it. Glad that you found it. And as you just found us, you have a plethora of episodes to check out. We hope that you enjoy the ride all along the way. But with that, let's head into the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? Looks like meat. Back on the menu, boys. Welcome to another segment of The Meat. I'm really excited to be able to introduce to you a new guest to the Dungeon Master's Block. J.C. Kong is here today. He is a fantasy and sci-fi author specifically of the Dragon Song Saga and multiple other books. J.C., Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. We're excited to have you. I'm really glad you were able to carve out some time and, and join us. For those who are, which I guess is everybody because we're in podcast form, uh, JC has a fantastic uh, author set up behind him of what I'm assuming is uh, a mixture of your books and other books. So what's happened here is that my wife allowed me to carve out a niche of the guest bedroom for things like this for interviews. This is obviously a podcast, but sometimes we do like Zoom interviews. And so I basically set up a shelf with some of the most influential books in, for me. Like here I have Dragonlance from- I was gonna say so much Dragonlance. Yes. Yeah, Dragonlance. Here are a bunch of signed books from uh, author friends of mine. This is mostly YA stuff. I do have my own stuff here. More of that. It's basically based upon the height of the shelf as to how things <laughs> got got a, got <laughs> placed. Um, but a lot of different things. If I'm known for one thing, it might be for my uh, amplification of Asian fantasy. So down here on the next shelf is a lot of Asian fantasies. A lot of authors who have um, put out works in the last few years. And you know, I I'm a reviewer for Fantasy Faction and I interviewed several of them and did book reviews for their books. And so I get signed copies. <laughs> we are kindred spirits, certainly in that. Anyone that we can get assigned copies of in person, get it shipped, we're, we're definitely on board. There's something about having that that human touch to a book that just elevates it, in my opinion. It's special, um, yeah. Yeah. So another question to jump right into our interview section a little bit is that, is there anything you can tell us about yourself? Um, we, we made some jokes earlier before we started recording, long walks on the beach, or just really anything you think our listeners would be interested in? Well, I'm six feet tall and 200 pounds, but I guess they probably <laughs> are not too interested in that. By trade, I'm an acupuncturist and a Chinese herbal medicine doctor. I also teach Wing Chun Kung Fu, and those are kind of like the job and the paying hobby. <laughs> and the, then the jobby, the job. Yes. The jobby. <laughs> and then of course, writing on the side, uh, we have a big vegetable garden. I have a rat terrier dog and, uh, yeah, that's about 
my life. Oh, I have two kids too. <laughs> Fantastic. And then for um, those who, whether they uh, have been able to keep up with your work uh, or those who, this is their first introduction uh, to you, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, are you working on any current projects or books right now that you'd like our listeners to know about? Um, so I guess the big success I had was with the Dragon Song Saga. And I, that was originally, I envisioned this entire world, well, not initially, but I imagined writing three quartets that interlaced with each other and Dragon Song Saga is the complete one. Uh, I have also written book ones and published book ones of the other two. And as of today, I picked back up uh, the sequel to one of the books. Um, I've actually been in something of a rut for the last four or five months after I read Lee Bardugo's Six of Crows. And I was just so blown away by what an amazing book that was and the found family and the witty banter and just the damaged characters is like, oh, I have no business writing. <laughs> But I'm back to it. I, you know, I was like, they, they're going to ask me what I'm working on. So I'm going to work on something today. So I can thank you guys. I can thank you guys for getting me back in the saddle. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, and I can, I feel like we're just continuing to make those spirits even more kindred because I feel the same. I'll listen to a podcast and be like, why do I get in front of a mic? Um, but it's guests like you that help motivate us to keep going. Um, and thankfully we also have some amazing patrons. So if you're ready, I have a surprise question for you. Go ahead. So if a massive modern city existed in your home game universe, what kinds of jobs would fall on urban environment druids? I, so, okay. <laughs> Tough question, but I my most recent book, Quantum Cultivation, written under the pen name Jace Kong, is set in 2800 Kyoto, and there is very little green space there. And the jobs of keeping it clean falls on what we call the purebred. And these are people who are not genetically modified. They're sort of the benchmark for where homo sapiens can sort of gauge where they've come from. It's kind of like Gattaca. For, I, don't, I might be showing my age as the movie there. But I imagine if there were druids in this world, they would be the ones taking care of the green spaces and, and making sure that the endangered species were less endangered. I love it. That Well, so first, thank you for answering it. And that makes it's always weird to think about like what municipal jobs like magic people yeah. with magic would end up having. Bringing course, these fantastic like classes into like more of a mundane like area. Like yeah. That. Well, and also DM Exitium was the one that sent us that question. So thank you to him as well. But what, what were you going to say, JC? I was going to give a huge shout out to Zach Pike's Orconomics, which has a city with magic people and they have various jobs. And also JC Nelson, one of my critique partner who writes urban fantasy. And there are magical creatures that have mundane jobs that you're like, oh, wow, that's really creative. So highly recommend his yeah. Grim Agency. Uh, so JC, when like you it. and me were talking about a topic for this upcoming episode, what we landed on was uh, we, we really love to bring on guests to talk about something that they're passionate about. And obviously you're passionate about your books, your stories that you've told, the world building that you've gone through and made. And so one of the aspects that we decided to talk about uh, is magic and culture and how depending on the different cultures that we're talking to a lot of DMs right now, a lot of people who go through world building,
sense of like how magic works. It can really dive into the weeds of different things that magic can be different depending on the culture. Now, this started this conversation because in your uh, fantasy novels, you really dive in deep to this. And I was able to kind of do a little bit exploring on your website and just see videos that you even done talking about this. So for our listeners, can you give a little bit of background to uh, your world that you've built, which you did say started as a D&D world, right? Like a world that you played in. So you had mentioned a little background and I'm going to give you a lot of background. Um, give it to bas- us. Yes. Basically, the world that I write in started off as my Dungeons and Dragons campaign world, which I created when I was like 13 or 14 years old. Now, when you're 13 or 14 and you're a man or a boy, I should say, you're thinking about one thing, rolling dice. Um, and so... <laughs> Later on, you know, I created this world. I had certain concepts in it, but it was a very basic world because at age 14, you don't have a lot of life experience. You don't necessarily know how the world works. And so, you know, I stopped playing Dungeons and Dragons probably when I was like 19 years old. I just didn't have time. Um, And then this is back in the day when it wasn't cool. Like nowadays, you know, critical moral and all this has made Dungeons and Dragons kind of of cool, kind of popular. You know, back in the day, it was not, you know, Um, so you know, 20 some years later, I'm at my mom's house. She wants me to clear out my old bedroom of some things. And I came across my Dungeons and Dragons world. And I'm here looking at it and just laughing at myself because I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, what is a 14 year old? Well, I knew what a 14 year old thought about. Um, and so I was, I said, I'm going to recreate this world. And so I went and took basically six days every day, just starting with the map and dealing with countries and cultures and put it all together. I was influenced heavily by the video game civilization, the computer game civilization, which has like real cultures, but oftentimes in proximity to each other, um, that you know, places that were not in proximity to each other can be within the game. And so I created, uh, created this world with this idea that certain cultures would be influenced by each other that wouldn't have been influenced each other in real history. And so the other aspect of this was that after when I was done, I was here thinking, you know, I'm really not going to play Dungeons and Dragons again. And in the grand scheme of things, when I was a dungeon master, you know, my players didn't do what I wanted them to do anyway. They didn't follow the script. So I was like, I want to write stories. What I've learned as an author is that actually your characters don't follow your script either. Um, As you write them, they become they take a life of their own and you get to know them better. And the things you wanted them to do, you realize you can't. Sometimes you have to make them do it by external forces. They're not going to do it on their own. <laughs> so, um, but in any case, what I have in the world of Tivara is eight human ethnic groups that are based on real, you know, his- historical cultures. So, for example, the one I write in the most is East Asian. It's kind of a fusion of Qing Dynasty China and Sengoku era Japan. And they use artistic magic. That is magic that is that is evoked through artistic endeavor. So the main character of the dragon songs is Kaya, and she has the perfect voice to evoke the lost magic of dragon songs, which is using using music to evoke magic, and also dance as well, letting the music move you to you know to to evoke a magic effect. And so that's what her particular culture has. But right to the south uh, of them is a South Asian culture and they are a little bit more like jedi knights in terms of like maybe not original series which i like the best but more like prequel series uh where you have people doing you know jedi doing really cool things you know moving faster than humanly possible um deflecting you know bolts well i guess you don't have to deflect it from stormtroopers because they're going to miss anyway uh 
And then, but nothing like the, the, the sequel series where the forest just goes out of control. Um, so that's the South Asian side of the world. And then if you go farther South, you go into the East African side and they're more like classical sorcery. In the grand scheme of things, a lot of this was based a lot on Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so for example, there are, we don't, I don't call them clerics, but there are people who do divine magic. I don't call them druids, but I call them shamans or shamans. Um, and so, and then of course the mu music is bards and then uh, magicians. So there are things that could relatively relate to like old school second edition Dungeons and Dragons. That was a very long answer. Yes. I, I need to take a few no, breaths here. No, but that's, I mean, that's great. So when in your world that started as a D&D &D world and now has transitioned into these books, these novels, um, when you travel to different cultures and meet these different people, like you said, behind this this curtain, there has been D&D &D inspiration of, you're saying of like classes, mm -hmm. like the bards, the sorcerers. And, and I, I love the idea of coming to, as, as DMs who are listening, coming to your world and thinking about the different aspects of the different cultures in your world and asking that question with magic and how magic mm -hmm. works. And I think there's many ways to do it. And one of those is exactly what you're talking about and like an entire culture that's focused on, I love that, the the art and magic through art and a, a bard-like culture is super, super interesting. And I mean, as you're walking through their cities, their towns, it's going to be very, very apparent that this is a different type of, type of culture based all off of like picking a certain class in D&D &D and saying, well, what would, it, what would an entire culture that is really focused on bard magic look like? What would their town square look like? What would their government look like? It, it really starts you with one question, starts to open up all different other questions that can really bring life to a world. That's what I absolutely love about world building is like one little element can just expand out into something new. I should clarify that the, the main world, the main place where the Dragon Song takes place is a place I call Cathay, which is based upon East Asia. It's not just music. In fact, that's a dead art there. But however, there are other ones like um, calligraphy and painting um, and textiles. And so all of these appear within the world building in terms of um, just decorations, like signs on, on buildings, one thing to try to welcome someone to come in. Um, so all these little things do appear there's more common magic that I should say in this world. And so, yeah, you'll see a little bit of that as well. And now I'm just imagining like a, almost like Times Square, like uh, setting in a fantasy world with these bright paintings and such, but instead of like neon lights, it's paintings that are creating magical mm -hmm. yeah. lights in a, in a fantasy world. And I love that. But in, if you go into magical lights, when I speak of the East African culture to the South, one of the most basic spells they do is, uh, you know, wizard lights. And so all the apprentices, they, that's one of the things they practice on. So what they end up with is a huge surplus of magical lights that are infused into little glass beads. And so they export that. And so most of the cities in this world are lit by continual light <laughs> bubbles. The other thing that I hadn't, I, I mean, maybe I hadn't invested much thought into, but I, I uh, will, of course, invest way too much thought into now that you have given me it, is the idea of, like, based on the culture, the speed at which magic happens is such an interesting idea of, like, the calligraphy and writing something down quickly to enact that spell 
opposed to the idea of building something like building a magical structure and like decades could go into the magic of that structure and that final brick be laid and then it happens well um, there are aspects of this i mean one of the main concepts of this world is there is deep magic and shallow magic and shallow magic comes from within a person versus the deep magic is drawn from the energy of the world and each culture describes this energy of the world in different ways the people who see the future basically these are the equivalent of of romans the what diviners they call it the whispers of the gods um and then uh, for example the the south south asians the jedi they call it the vibrations of the world and so everyone has like a different name for that source of magic and when i started writing quantum cultivation which is my cyberpunk mashup that takes place in future earth i wanted to find a way to connect that to my tivara world and so that sort of that well anyway they do connect in terms of even though there are different magic there are different names for it it's basically based on the same magic system so a question I have for you, um, while you were building this world of Tavara, and you said you you really drew inspiration from real world history and real world cultures. Somewhere along that world building, you decided I'm going to uh, create this culture in my world that has uh, historical tie-ins to a culture in the real world. And then somewhere along that world building, you decided... And this, this culture in my world will have magic that is brought about by art. And this culture will have magic that's kind of along the lines of a cleric, like you're pulling upon a divine source. How did you kind of decide which culture would have the different magical focuses? Was that drawn from real world cultures and kind of ideas from that? Or was that kind of just chosen with what you want to some degree to some degree and a lot of it was chosen based upon what i needed at a, at a given situation and and i had to make sure it made sense within the bigger world building picture the basic idea of this is that the ability to manip manipulate magic or to use magic is carried on an x chromosome so a female is much more likely to have magic than a male just like male pattern baldness um but so what happened, part of the backstory of the world is that at one time, the orcs of the world controlled everything and humans were just slaves to them. And at this time, you know, they, the orcs had won a huge worldwide battle against uh, the elves of the world. And so then the elves were now in hiding. And then at a certain point, there's a certain conjunction of, of the of the moons and that's part of what can influence magic as well um, is certain positions of, of the of the planets and the moons. Um, when the gods sent their angels, the elf gods sent their angels down to the world to basically destroy the orcs, but they had to do it by using a long-term magic. They were doing this magic spell that would take uh, several years to enact. Um, but in the meantime, they were they were searching the world, trying to find the pockets of, of elves who were in hiding. And they came across humans and they realized, okay, if we use this magic, it's gonna wipe out the humans as well. And so elves don't trust humans in most worlds. And so they said, well, we can use these humans to help us, but we're not gonna teach them everything we know. And so they were the ones who decided, okay, we're gonna teach the, the East Asians uh, artistic magic. We're gonna teach the Eastern Europeans empathic magic. We're gonna teach the, the, native, the indigenous Native Americans um, shamanic magic. So yeah, so there it is. You can see it's probably somewhat tied into <laughs> to real historical things, but there was basically 
that that's the backstory with the the elves deciding ultimately who who learns what the elf angels i should say i'm trying to think of the piece that sounded so much like a dungeon master like you can see the essence of like how dungeon mastering can help you develop stories it was the part where you said some of it is influenced by what you needed at the time Hmm. um and like it's such an important piece for dungeon masters to hold on to is that like waiting to find what's necessary to let that influence your world because it's world building isn't necessarily just like these legos that you smash together it's like it's it is it's almost artistic because you have to let that come to you as and then almost like flow through it as it happens and you have um because if and you have to make sure it doesn't break what you've established already that's the big thing i mean i i harp on star wars a lot because i love it so much but i mean in like the sequel series it's like you've broken the force you've broken hyperspace all these things that were established like early on you've broken them and so i kind of see that in in world building is that you have to make sure that if you introduce like a concept that it's something that couldn't have resolved the problem in before why didn't this person use this before or why didn't this culture use it before like going back to the sequel series why didn't someone why weren't they hyperspacing like uh smaller vessels into like star destroyers you know why is that i mean so going back to Star Wars, here I am criticizing J.J. Abrams. and I mean, <laughs> I, I love J.J. Abrams. I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I totally I do, agree. I don't. He's like, I'll give you a lens flare and a cool special effect, but screw the story. Yeah. <laughs> screw precedent, you know. I so. mean, if we're being honest, why didn't you just do it earlier in that movie? Nonetheless, the whole series. <laughs> right. And, right. I mean, yeah. Anyway. But but the, but no but you you hit on a piece that's very important, especially once I think you start talking about magic and cultures, is that whatever rules you set are the rules you need to continue to follow, or else it doesn't start to make sense for your players, and it doesn't make sense for you. Um, it's it, the same with time travel. I don't care how you do time travel. Whatever rules you set, just follow them. That's all I'm asking of you. If something breaks those rules, the players who hopefully have learned the established rules, when they react and go, wait, what? Like that doesn't, that's not how this works as you as a DM, if you as a world builder are just like, yeah, but I just wanted to work in this specific situation. No, it, like it could be a cool catalyst to a story. Uh, like, oh yes, you're correct. It doesn't work that way. This is strange. Maybe you should look into this, but a simple, like, I don't know, D and D we talk about the rule of cool a lot. Certainly when I'm playing with my players, I do want to lean into that rule of cool, but there is an established way a world I think should work. If you do want to create a world that feels real, there does need to be a set of rules that the world works by. And if those rules change, if those rules all of a sudden are broken, there needs to be some attention on that as, yeah, this is weird. This is different. So going back to hyperspace, and once again, in Star Wars, we're told that it's not like dusting crops. It's, it's something that's difficult. And yet in The Force Awakens, the Millennium Falcon jumps out of hyperspace into a planet's atmosphere. Um, and then in The Last Jedi, they ram whatever that the, the ship is, the Radis, into the Super Star Destroyer, the Super Duper, Kuduper Star Destroyer. And then in... Uh, the rise of Skywalker, Poe is his his X-wing is jumping from planet atmosphere to planet atmosphere to planet atmosphere, and all they could have said, they, I mean, if they had just established, hey, advances have been made in hyperspace, but they didn't, they didn't, they just did it, you know, it's just like there could have been so many ways they set that up that would have could have made that work, but I think once again, you know, the, 
J.J. Uh, Abrams, he's very, he likes the visual effects and he doesn't really think about precedent. I mean, I'm still kind of disappointed with some of the things that happened in Star Trek too. So kind of building off of this idea that we're talking about with coming to different cultures in a world and asking the question, how does magic work differently? How is it approached differently? How is it handled differently? For our listeners out there who are creating these homebrew worlds, um, if they're like listening to this and they're like, this is a really cool idea, I would like to start thinking about this, start thinking about how my cultures uh, handle magic differently, use magic differently. As somebody who has literally gone through this process of creating a world where magic is approached differently, do you have any advice or uh, maybe even like you've probably thought about this so much. Are there different ideas that you had along the way that you kind of said, no, not for my world, but you're like, this would be a cool way to build a world around magic. Any advice or ideas for our listeners? So I would say this is a chicken and the egg thing in terms of if, if you have certain aspects of magic, it will influence the culture. If a culture is a certain way, it'll, it'll influence the way magic is interpreted at the core uh, my stories are basically based on the idea that everything has a vibration or a resonance to it and how you influence. And this is, well, this is played out in, in, in the real world as well. I mean, if you take like an iron, if you take iron versus say copper, they resonated a different frequency. Um, and so, and it's all based upon molecular structure. And so that's how sort of the, the basic mechanics of my world work is that everything is based on resonance. And so once again, how a culture describes that, how a specific cultural group describes that is based upon their cultural understanding. And once again, that magic, if it's been a large influence in their development, it has influenced how their culture has developed as well. The resonance is such an interesting concept also of like continuing that out, like my world building brain says, are there two cultures that like oppose each other with that resonance and like their magic basically can cancel each other out? Like was my first thought. Um, and then so, so many other thoughts of, like you said, the culture, like what, what is your chicken? What is your egg of like, you know what? I have this idea that going back to the Druids, I really need someone to do this in my world when it comes to magic. And then you're like, oh, that would work great with this culture. Or I build a culture around that. Um, or I have this culture that already is very eco-friendly, if we will. And so then like, oh, should I give them druidic magic? Because they're starting to hone in on that resonance, that frequency, and whatever aspect it is that builds magic in your world. Well, part of that is gauged by conflict. And so I think that oftentimes what we see in our own world is that a lot of conflict happens within, within a culture itself. And so, for example, the place that they practice, you know, martial magic, you know, Jedi Knights, you know, the Jedi had the Sith, right? And so they're within, you know, my, the South Asian aspect of my world, the South Asian region of my world, you do have people who use martial magic for good, so to speak. And then you have some who use it for evil, so to speak. Um, and so they have particular skills that are meant to be used against each other just because that's the, you know, that conflict brings out innovation. So that's one aspect. And then with, you go to the sorcery group down in, uh, in the, the East Asian or sorry, East African part of my world, you have different 12 different schools of magic and some just sort of uh, are opposites of each other that so one works better against another 
what I like when I created uh, the quantum cultivation world, which the magic system was based on the Chinese medicine concept of five elements. You have very clearly water being able to defeat fire and fire being able to being able to temper metal and metal being able to cut wood and the roots of wood being able to hold earth into place. So you have a very clear cycle of what element can defeat another. And that will eventually find its way back into Tivara just because there is a slight overlap there as well. Yeah, I love the idea of it. Like like we said earlier, once you start asking the one question, it opens up mm -hmm. all these other questions that as you're world building, you can like get excited about and go, yeah, so what does that mean? So when you've established these, these nations, these cultures, uh, these groups of people that go about magic differently, then you have to start asking, well, how do they interact? Um, and it could be war. It could just be like, a miss it could be peace it could be misunderstandings trade how does a a culture a nation that is built up around wizards that i mean um, first of all i imagine their their cities having tremendous libraries and having such a love and respect um uh, for books and lore and the study of spells and then you come and you say, well, how does that group of people interact with the nation that is all sorcerers and they're getting their magic um, just from their bloodline uh, uh, that comes from dragons or whatever it is and they don't have to study at all? I can imagine there being some tension between <laughs> those groups, the wizards thinking that they were the sorcerers, the people in, in that nation just literally don't really truly respect their power because they've never had to put any work into it. And you can certainly imagine uh, the sorcerer nation looking down on the wizarding nation being like, yeah, clearly we were chosen with purpose here and they have to toil through books endlessly to harness the power that we were just innately given. That's a really great insight. I'm writing this down for my next book. <laughs> yeah. hey. So, no, I was saying I'm, I'm working on a sequel. Well, the book to that is Masters of Deception. I'm putting it up here on the screen so, yes. so those of us on, on uh, Zoom can see it. But one of the main characters of this story, her arc is she belongs to this clan of, I say, biomancers, or people who use, who basically manipulate life energy. And however, there was a conflict uh, within their conclave and their clan was stripped all their spell books were destroyed so and they were disgraced and so this one biomancer by virtue of also having pyromancer blood as well was able to learn a little higher grade magic and so most of her thing is learning how to study other types other families of magic and seeing how it relates to the lost biomancy spells so that she can start to put them together herself um, just from observing other types of magic and that's actually and now i think about it that's in dragon songs as well you have a this young woman who is a dragon singer or wants to be a dragon singer but there's no teacher so she has to observe like how do the how do the jedi like people how do they use magic and she observes that or how do uh, sorcerers use ma magic and she observes that and all of that helps her develop on her own yeah and even kind of now you've sparked even more because you talked about cultures that are based on very like cleric like magic that they're drawing their magic upon from a divine source and when i think of a world of D, &D and i think of clerics and i think of paladins 
and the way that they get their magic, there are typically some stipulations to that. Like, you need to be in line with your god to some degree. You need, like, if you totally turn away from the way that your god wants you to live your life, uh, and then you broaden that to a nationwide or a people-wide group, the power may be taken away from you. And again, what if you have a whole entire nation that is built around something like that where magic, listen, like magic has rules, but not only rules to magic, but rules to how you live your life and how you use that magic. And then you come across a wild magic type group that is totally not just, not just like not worried about rules, but embracing the chaos. Those two groups of people are going to have some sort of clash if they meet up together, um, whether that's individuals in a group, if you have players in your game that are from those different places, or if there are nations that are coming into some sort of some sort of conflict together. Indeed. Yeah. I was gonna say book three, if I ever get to it for that series, does does <laughs> deal with that. That'll be mostly about sort of the cleric, the divine magic and how how a sultan of a country deviated from the path and how his his uh, clerics, his acolytes all lost their power because of it. And then part of this is also the influence of a foreign magic as well that does that. So. It also got me thinking of the idea behind having a culture whose magic is related to collective belief is probably the best term I can use. And that, I mean, which is, sounds really, really nice because it also makes me think of orcs in Warhammer 40,000 who just genuinely believe that red things go faster. And because they all <laughs> believe it, you get a plus one on your vehicle movements um, because red things go faster. Is that only if you're an orc? Group. Yes, okay. yes, because you believe. Um, and so then it's like Santa adding, Claus. Yeah, adding that idea in that, collective belief could also be where magic comes from um, based on the culture. And that like, as long as everyone is on board, then like, that's how it works. It was a really interesting concept because you could also enter a world or enter that culture. And then something that worked one way everywhere else works differently here because there is that collective belief that that is how it works. And in turn, that is true. And one of the, the, as, DMs like coming to a building a world for a D&D setting one of the obvious ones JC you talked about kind of basing these cultures these groups of people and the way they use magic on class types obviously you could also go the other route of basing it off of um, schools of magic um, and at least from what I, I was uh, reading on your website it does seem like there is that element uh, that is present in your world as well. It's not a, mag a magic school, but I know that there's a group of people in your world that have uh, runes as magic, like that's their focus. But certainly when you lay out all the schools of magic for D&D &D and start to ask, okay, what if an entire culture is built around evocation? What does that look like? Necromancy, what does that look like? It really can start to paint a picture in your head of how a culture would go about uh, not just harnessing magic, but it can start to paint a picture of how their their architecture looks, mm -hmm. um, what is important in their society, mm -hmm. what taboos they may have in their society. 
And again, then you start to ask, what about the two cultures coming together? Uh, divine uh, magic culture and a necromancy culture coming together. There's going to be some really difficult, sometimes interesting interactions, which now makes me want to be an ambassador as a player in one of these worlds because <laughs> I would love to be like, all right, we're going to, we're either coming from the necromancy culture and how how do we have to like learn how to interact with these other cultures or going to the necromancy culture and what are the things that we need to kind of like understand this is part of this people and how they operate and it might really seem odd or even downright dark and evil to me what am i gonna have to do as an ambassador i am gonna highly recommend phil tucker's empire of the dead if you're if you want to see what a necromantic culture looks like it's basically a babylonian's uh setting and basically being some some one person can raise the dead and the, the, the dead are all the servants and stuff like that so it's interesting his interesting take on that highly recommend it oh it's also a heist so it's like kind of oceans 11 meets gilgamesh and oh, the uh, fear of the walking dead <laughs> i also like i feel you're, you're hurting you're hurting my brain and in, in my ever-growing list of books <laughs> yes i'm just like oh crap i gotta read all of these now i definitely need to i think Mitch hit on it a little bit, but is there, and I'll ask it in a different way. Is there some aspect that just didn't work while you were developing it and like kind of went to the cutting room floor? Cause I know I do that as a DM a lot. Like I'll build the world and be like, you know, that sounds so good, but it just won't fit. Um, when you were developing magics and cultures, was there some sort of pain point, I guess? You know, I, there's so much that happens in this world. I'm, I, if there was, I have since forgotten it. I oh, tend yeah. to be a recycler. So if I, there's an idea I like, I really like, but it doesn't fit, I'll try to find a way to integrate it into a, like an unrelated short story. But I'm kind of of the opinion that I can almost make anything fit into this world. Almost. <laughs> so. Love it. Nope. That's, I mean, and that's a great mentality because I was thinking the same thing of just like, if I don't use it, then it just sits over here until I can use it. Cause I can use it at some point. Like there's no, no idea is a, is a bad idea because at the very least every idea got you to a better one. So, well, I think being able to hyperspace, hyperspace, a, a Starcraft into another, that's a bad idea, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I would say that, yeah, now that I think about it, since you sparked my imagination here, it was the, the Chinese medicine martial arts system that I created for quantum cultivation, or rather I hadn't created for specifically for quantum cultivation. I had created this magic system, but I didn't think it fit within the magic system of Tivara. And so that's why I put it into a different story. But then as I was writing quantum cultivation, I was able to see, okay, actually I can tie this back in to the magic of Tivara as well. Originally, I didn't think it would have fit. And actually that's what gave me the motivation to finish quantum cultivation, because that was kind of a real tooth puller for a while. I was just like, oh, this book just won't end. I can't figure it out. But once I figured out how to tie those things together, it was much more smooth sailing. Oh, which is such a good point because I know myself and a lot of DMs, like some just play Dungeons and Dragons. Some play Dungeons and Dragons and Shadowrun and um, Masks and all these things. So yeah, like not limiting yourself to like just because an idea didn't work in one almost genre of RPG, but having it ready to adapt and play into a different one is a great piece of advice. My brain is just spinning with all different ways that uh, this can manifest in a uh, in a world that's being created. Uh, I'm thinking about a druidic civilization and how 
that would look in a world. I, I'm wondering if it would be like, oh, they would all gather in this one great forest and keep on like cultivating this forest, or are they completely spread out through the world? And so uh, when you're traveling in this world, whenever you go into a forest, you're going to come across like little groups of these druidic people and they've completely said no to civilization and they they just get out into the wilderness of course the necromancy thing is still kind of going off in my mind i'm thinking about cultures that focus on elemental magic and whether they have a tie-in in your world to the planes of different elements like the plane of fire the plane of air uh, maybe they can travel between them like at will it really just starts to just from like picking a certain type of magic or a certain type of class create a whole different setting a whole different a whole different uh group that is based off of that and to me i think that's a really cool concept because I know I've had I've struggled with if I don't think about a culture or a city enough that players are visiting, it turns into kind of like the same thing. I remember playing the first Assassin's Creed game and it turned me off to the entire series because it was like you would go to the different cities. And I remember being like, these are all the same. Mm-hmm. It just feels like cutouts of the city I just like went to. And so I feel like if you are in the first stages of building your world and you want some inspiration and you have your players, they, they do that classic player thing of saying, you know what, you want us to go North. We're going to go South. And you have to like come up with something, come up with a place or a a people for them to visit um, a group for them to run into. Like, this is a great way to um, start that idea in your head and just say, okay, let me pick a magic school. Let me pick a class that uses spells and let me base this city, this place they're going to, this nation around this type of magic. I think one series that does that brilliantly, of course, is Avatar The Last Airbender. You know, the Fire Nation has a certain type of architecture. Their people have a certain type of attitude. Um, Same thing, the Earth Nation, they have a certain kind of architecture. They have a certain type of personality. Um, The Air Nomads, that's actually, not the Air Nomads, sorry about that. The uh, the Water Nation, that's actually the cool thing. The Water Tribe is that you have the Northern and Southern Tribe, and they have two very different cultures, even though they have the same magic. So I think that's kind of cool how that that developed. That's perfect. And I think that leads us into one of my favorite questions to ask, and you've certainly done a Great job of peppering it throughout, but we always call this next section the homework section of different movies, books, podcasts, um, et cetera, that we can throw out to our listeners to engage with a lot of the topics we've been talking about. So if I was going to like quickly go through some of the ones you've already said, we've got Six of Crows um, is definitely check that out. Orconomics and then The Empire of the Dead are three books you've already thrown out, including checking out The Last Airbender. Um, So are there other kind of pieces of media that you think would be good um, inspiration for our listeners? Oh, gosh. I have a whole long list. Let me go look at my bookshelf. Uh, it's okay. I'm here. already sitting down. <laughs> Waters of Salt and Sin by Alicia Klebecki. Number one is just the prose is beautiful. And she's not the one who has, she doesn't use SAT words. She uses everyday words, but somehow creates these really evocative sentences. Uh, But it's a really cool world building in terms of how the magic has worked. And also just everything actually, as as Mitch was saying, how does the magic and the culture interact and how do they develop each other? Really good there. Vine Witch by Luan G. Smith. Also, she is just a brilliant 
brilliant wordsmith. I mean, she does use SAT words, but also just <laughs> just, just glorious writing, decadent writing. But uh, I'm not I'm not one for wine. I'm a more of a beer person when I actually drink at all. I don't because I get fat easily. Uh, but I'm not into wine. I'm not into witches. But she does this really great job of creating actually different types of magic systems. She has like a genie magic system. She has fey magic. She has witch magic, and somehow puts them all together and has their cultures developed as well. So Luan G. Smith, Smith, uh, Vine Witch, Charlie M. Holmberg's uh, Spellbreaker. Actually, I haven't read that one yet, but she has a paper magician, plastic magician. This is a Victorian uh, setting. And uh, sort of the, it's a it's a magic system, magic school. And after you finish magic magic school, you go into a different material, and each material is manipulated different ways. Just a very very fun book. Uh, let's see what else I have here. Um, <laughs> pulling this up so you can see it. Crimson Alec Hudson's Crimson Queen. Also very brilliant writing. Alec is a master wordsmith. And what I love about that is, uh, in terms of the world building, is that it's once again very cultural. There's a kind of an East versus Middle East thing going on here. And the East and the Middle East have different type of magics, but they are somewhat related. And so you both get an amazing story, amazing world building, and an amazing magic system all in one. I don't have his book here, but Phil Tucker's, uh, I mentioned his um, Empire of the Dead, but actually his Chronicle of the Black Gate is really fascinating. It has this idea of negative and positive energy and people using it in different ways and also brings in demons as well. So highly recommend that. What else? That's enough for now, right? <laughs> that's that's yes. that's a great starting point. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you guys stole my homework, which was Avatar. I thought Avatar immediately. I was like, oh, that's a good one. And it goes into this culture as well. But yeah, obviously, uh, JC, you just gave uh, all of our listeners and us a great long list. Um, and this is the best part. It sounds like you have more that if 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 we finish through those books, uh, you have some more many more recommendations. So um, if our listeners would like to uh, get in touch with you, maybe for some more recommendations or just be able to follow you, see what uh, you're currently working on, check out your body of work, where are the best places for them to be able to go and do those things? So Facebook is a good place. I am at Legends of Tivara on Facebook. I am jc kong 804 or maybe i'm john kong i'm jc kong 804 on twitter uh and then lately i've been doing a lot of book reviews on both tiktok and instagram and so instagram is jc.kong i think and tiktok is just jc kong so yeah i'm all over the place on social media fantastic well, JC, thanks again uh, for joining us on on an episode of Dungeon Masters Block. I think this was a really interesting topic to dive into. It has, at least, it has my brain swirling with new ideas and new questions to ask when I come to uh, the table and DM, or when I'm thinking about an upcoming story uh, that I want to tell with my players and the world I want to build. So uh, we appreciate your time and uh, hope to have you back on again in the future. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Well, thanks again to JC for joining us on this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed uh, the discussion about how magic can bring new life to the cultures in your world. If you liked this episode of the Dungeon Masters Block, or you have liked previous episodes or maybe future episodes, please consider leaving us a five-star review on whatever podcatcher app you use to listen to our show. 
It helps to broaden our audience to reach old DMs, new DMs, and aspiring DMs alike. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMs block. And you can like our Facebook page for updates about the show. And as always, the Dungeon Masters Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network. Check out other shows like Detentions and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons and Daughters, Geek Wars, and more. Well, that's all we have for you on this episode of The Dungeon Master's Block, the place that we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all their people at the table. I'm DM Mitch, reminding you to always keep on Dungeon Mastering. Dungeon Mastering.